Well, good morning, guys. We get to jump into our final week of Walking with Jesus. Have you guys enjoyed this sermon series? It's the week eight, um, and it's, um, man, it's been a lot of work. I'm, I'm going to be honest. We're excited about it because it was such an incredible trip when Jennifer and I went to Israel. We just wanted to share it with you guys. And our goal from the beginning was not to, well, here's the sites and here's where we went, here's what we did, and here's why you should go, or anything like that. We really wanted you to to gain an appreciation for Jesus through this, what it looks like to really follow him and to understand how he lived and where he went and, and the things he did. And so I hope I've kind of picked an interest that you want to dig a little deeper. Uh, we have something here at Cornerstone called Right Now Media. It's like a, the best way we've described it is like a Netflix for Bible studies. And so there's apps on your phone uh, for Apple TV, Roku, all that stuff. You can pull up apps and watch it. You can watch it on your computer as well. Um, and so um, if you, we pay for it as a church so you, that you have free access. And so it's got, also got incredible kid stuff. But there are several series on there that are great. Uh, one is called Walking with Jesus by a, a, a pastor named Matt Reagan. There's another one called Following the Messiah. Uh, by Appian Media. There's one by Franklin Graham that's really good. Tony Evans has one as well. There's just, there's all all on Israel. And so if you want to dig deeper, go and watch those videos. It's amazing what you can learn. We've been going through the Walking with Jesus one in our life group, and it's been fantastic. So uh, I encourage you to um, there, there, we just have so much information available to us because of the internet, because of the resources we have. There's no excuse not to l- continue learning and growing uh, in your faith and learning about Jesus and learning about the Bible and the places and the sites and the, and the things in, in the Holy Land. So I'll just mention that. So let me start off this morning. It's a long introduction, right? <laughs> let, me, let me start off by asking you a question. What would it have been like to be there with Jesus? What would it have been like to actually walk and to learn from the master, from the Messiah, to actually see him and see how he lived and to see the things he did and to see the miracles he performed and just to watch him in action? Man, it would have been incredible, wouldn't it? To see the demons cast out, to see him multiply the loaves and the fish, to see him walk on water. Uh, You know, as we've gone through this series and I've showed some of the places in Israel for the last, this is the eighth week, so for the last seven weeks, um, we've really, man, it just, it's, and being there, it was so eye-opening just to see those places. But I, I think sometimes we feel like God was present then, but he's not present now. Let me explain. J.D. Greer wrote a book called Jesus Continued, and in it he said this. He said, the Holy Spirit tends to be the forgotten member of the Trinity. Most Christians know he's there, but they are unclear about exactly what he does or how to interact with him, or if that's even possible. Yet something was so important about the Holy Spirit that Jesus told his disciples it was to their advantage that he go away. If his departure meant the Spirit came. The Spirit's presence inside them, he said, would be better than himself beside them. In fact, they needed the Spirit's presence so much that Jesus told them not so much to even raise a finger toward the Great Commission until the Spirit 
had arrived. Man, that, that, I don't know if, if you really heard what I just said, but this changes everything. Because in our minds, we've got this idea that, man, if Jesus was just here, he could show us what to do. And we've forgotten that the Holy Spirit is here. And so I want to take us on a journey this morning to look at Jesus' final week in Jerusalem and how he was preparing his disciples, and he was preparing us too, for how to live after he was gone from his earthly body. So as I've done all series long, I want to show you a video to show some of the places in Israel to kind of explain a few things, and then we'll jump in. Jerusalem, the holy city. As you walk through the streets, you travel back in time. You can just imagine the crowds of people who would flock here during the Jewish festivals. There is so much history to see. The old city today is surrounded by walls that were built in the 1500s. But there are sections of the wall that are original that were built where the wall is built on top of the wall that was built by Herod the Great. The Western Wall is considered to be the holiest site for the Jewish people because the original wall at the base of the temple from 2,000 years ago is exposed. And this is where people gather night and day to pray. You can even travel through rabbinical tunnels that are 40 feet underneath the Western Walls that go to the original Roman road that was used at the time of Jesus. Another interesting place in Jerusalem is the Southern Steps. Uh, these were steps that led to the temple at the time of Jesus. And these are the steps that the Israelites would use as they made their way to the temple during the festivals. They would recite and sing the Psalms of Ascent as they walked. The steps are unevenly spaced so as to make them reflect and think as they made their way to the temple. But perhaps Jerusalem is best known for the events of the Holy Passion Week. You can see the Mount of Olives that Jesus traveled through on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem. You can see the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed and was betrayed by Judas. You can see the House of Caiaphas where Jesus was held until the trial. You can walk the Via Dolorosa, the way of the suffering that marks the path that Jesus took as he was tortured and crucified. And then there's Golgotha, the place of the skull. In Jerusalem today, there are two possible locations for this, either the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site. And here you will find a fascinating church shared by multiple groups and churches. It's probably the most crowded site in Jerusalem as people wait to walk through the tomb. You can even walk up a steep, narrow stairwell to touch the rock at Golgotha where the cross was placed. But there is another place that something could be the place as well. It's the Garden Tomb. And it's an incredible outdoor experience where you can see what a first century tomb really looks like. But the good news is that the tomb is still empty today. And because of that, we worship a risen Savior. Today, we're going to learn more about the power we have because of the Holy Spirit that indwells each of us. Amen. So I'm going to jump right in today. Hopefully that gave you a little bit of a kind of a feel for what Jerusalem is like. And you can see how narrow those city streets were where we were walking down. And you would think, man, this is pretty crazy, you know, walking down. And then a motorcycle would zip by you, weaving through the crowd. 
Uh, it was crazy. They ride, and there's places where there's stairs and people riding motorcycles up and down the stairwell. It, it's, it, it's a neat place to visit. You just got to be very aware of your surroundings as you go through those crowds. It's neat, though, to, to, to experience. Uh, today, I want to, as always, I encourage you to take notes. Um, they're available at live.mycornerstone.org. Uh, they're available at, on, on the Bible app as well. If you go to events, you can pull it up and find our sermon notes there. But I'm going to jump right in. Here's the first thing I want to share with you this morning. And it's simply a question. Are we looking for Jesus to solve a problem or, or are we looking for him to lead our life? That's a, that's a big question that we need to answer. What's our outlook on life and how do we really view Jesus? Is Jesus there just to solve our problems when we're in trouble? I feel like so many people view Jesus that way. It's like when I get in trouble, Jesus, bail me out. Jesus, help me. Jesus, I need you. But the rest of the time we're like, fine, I've got it on my own. Or do we look to him first? Do we look to how we fit in his plan and, and make him at the center of everything we do? I know we know the, the correct answer in our head, but how do we really live? Uh, it's interesting. Jennifer and I were talking about this a, a few weeks ago. I think the ladies may have talked about this some on their retreat uh, that they went on this weekend. But we were talking about control and transformation and how those two things are really sometimes mutually exclusive. You can't have control and be transformed. If we want to be transformed, we've got to release control. We've got to let Jesus lead us. Uh, and so uh, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the disciples still didn't understand. They were still trying to think, okay, we, we, we've got this. Let's figure out how he is going to become the, the king of Israel. So the people, I mean, they're waiting for this king to come and overthrow the Roman government. The people wanted freedom. They were oppressed. They didn't like the Roman government. They wanted the ruler to ride into Jerusalem on his white horse and, and, and take the throne and, and, and be the rightful king that they had long awaited. But they didn't understand that Jesus had been preparing them and telling them and he would continue for that whole last week to tell them, hey, I'm going away soon. And, and they didn't understand. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you this morning, I'm going to share a lot of scripture um, and kind of walk us through. We're going to be in the book of John, um, and we're kind of going to walk our way through uh, some of the events of the last week. And I want you to see, I, I want you to really zero in on how Jesus was preparing his disciples and in turn preparing us. In John chapter 12, it said, uh, and we'll start in uh, verse 12. It says, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, it swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and, and they were telling others about it. That was, reasons, that was the reason that so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. And then the Pharisees said to, to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone had gone after him. 
And so Lazarus lived in Bethany, which is right over the hill, right over top of the Mount of Olives, down the other side from Jerusalem. And so the people there, they had heard about, they had saw this miracle, they had seen what happened, and, and they knew Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, and it got the people excited. This is the Palm Sunday, right? The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The crowds had gathered, they knew of the prophecies, and yet we know, right, that the same crowds turned on Jesus later in the week. Why was that? Well, I think our guide, actually, when we were there, brought up an interesting proposition, and we don't know for sure. Um, I've heard many different theories over the years, but uh, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the people, uh, we don't know how, which gate, you to enter into the city, you had to go through a gate. Uh, there's a walled city, much like today, um, but you had to go through a gate, and people were expecting the king to come riding in the eastern gate. Now, I've heard it taught, and we don't know this because it's not specifically mentioned in the Bible, but beside the eastern gate, uh, down kind of around the side a little bit, there was a smaller gate, and it was a gate called the Sheep Gate. Um, and this was the place where they brought in the lambs to be slaughtered in the temple. And so I've heard many people teach this throughout the years that we think Jesus, when he came down to ride into the city triumphant as king, instead of going through the, the kingly gate, he took a detour and went in the sheep's gate. Now we don't know that, but man, to me, that makes sense, right? To be the sacrifice. And our God even said, what if that's why the people turned on him? They wanted him to be the king, and yet they saw that he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. They wanted control instead of transformation. See, that's the problem we run into in life sometimes. And, and we'll continue to see that throughout this story. Let's skip ahead a little bit. Lot, so much here that happens. We'll skip ahead to John chapter 13. We find the disciples gathered in the upper room. This is in a part of the city called Mount Zion. Um, there is now a, uh, in, in 1100, 1200, uh, there was a church built at this site. Uh, it was a crusader church, and, uh, and it is still standing today there. So, uh, and so we were able to go into the upper room. It's not the exact same room, but it's in the same place that Jesus was, we think. So that was pretty neat to, to experience that. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about that as we read this. And, and John 13 says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. See, he, he's trying to prepare them. So he got up from the table. This is at the Lord's Supper, right? He took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel he had around him. He's still preparing them. He, he does the unexpected. He takes the role of the lowest servant in the household and he washes their feet. They, they didn't know what to say. Peter's like, don't wash my feet. Don't do it. And Jesus, I got to. And, and you, you just see this confusion that they're experiencing. He keeps telling them, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I, I'm going away. He had told them this all the way back at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, when, he, when he asked Peter, who do people say that I am? He had started telling them in advance, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be buried, and, and yet I'm going to come back three days later. And they just simply could not accept it because they so wanted him to fulfill this role of the Messiah. And they just simply didn't understand. 
In John 13, if we keep going, he says, I'm giving you a new command. Love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And again, he's like, why are you telling us this? Aren't you going to be here with us? That's what's going through their mind. They're thinking, we, we need you. And, and he's telling them, you've got to prove to the world that you're mine. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to do it through the way you live, through your relationships, through the way you treat each other. And so that brings me to my next point, and this goes back to the quote I shared earlier. And I love this. The spirit inside us is better than the Jesus beside us. This goes back, and I can't take credit for this statement. This is from that book that J.D. Greer wrote called Jesus Continued. It's an awesome book about the Holy Spirit. But when I read this, man, it just floored me. All right? It just floored me when you really stop and think about it. Jesus was telling his disciples, it's better that I go. You don't really need me here. I'm, in fact, when I leave, you're going to get something even better than me. Now, that almost sounds blasphemous to say because we forget about the power of the Holy Spirit. We forget about the role of the Holy Spirit. And so in our minds, we've equated Jesus in the flesh. He's way up here and the Holy Spirit, oh, well, that's just something weird. Let's kind of dig into that a little bit. John 14 Right? He, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my, in my name and I'll do it. So he, he's just literally told them, You're, you can not only do the same things I did, you can do greater things. And he's telling them that you're going to have the power and you're going to have the ability to do what you could not do before. He goes on to tell them in John 14, if you love me, obey my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. We just see this continual right, preparation that he's doing. And when Jesus would ascend into heaven, he's saying, I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not going to be an orphan. In fact, I'm not going to be an absentee God. In fact, I'm leaving you with my presence in the form of the Holy Spirit. He's going to send another, our advocate, our helper, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us and empower us. If we skip on to John 16, as I said, I'm kind of walking you through all this that he's doing. And go back this week and read all the in-between here. There's so much good stuff. He says, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best, really look at verse 7 here in John 16. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. And so when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. 
He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Man, there's a lot there. I mean, that's deep stuff, but it's so good. I mean, Jesus is literally telling them, if I don't leave, the Spirit's not going to come. And it's better for you that you have the Spirit. The, 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 the Spirit inside us is better than the Jesus beside us. I love that. All right? J.D. Gurr, he went on to say this. He said, in Scripture, the word of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, they always go together. The word is God's revelation to us, and it's profitable for rebuke and for correction and for training and instruction in righteousness, right, as Paul teaches, capable of making us complete and sufficient for any and all good works. But only through the ministry of the Spirit, Jesus said, could we ever understand or obey that word. The Spirit makes the living Word come alive in us. He brings it to our remembrance at the times we need it. He explains it to us. He gives us the spiritual eyes to see God's beauty in it. He empowers us to obey it. He shows us the specific ways we are to apply it. And so when you think about this, I mean... We forget about the Holy Spirit all the time. The Spirit is what convicts us of our sin. It what shows us the righteousness of God. It prepares us for the coming judgment. It guides us in all truth. And it's what we need for day-to-day living. And here's what is crazy. Jesus believed that the Holy Spirit would be an even better teacher than he was. Why? Because people didn't always understand. They didn't always pay attention. They weren't always focused. He wasn't always there when they wanted an answer. But the Holy Spirit is always there and it's always speaking. It's always guiding us in truth. Does that like blow your mind a little bit to really think about that? Does that just like it? it, I'm telling you, I think we've missed it sometimes as the church. We've turned the Holy Spirit into an experience a feeling instead of uh, the the indwelling power that guides us, that reveals truth, that convicts us of our sin, that leads our life. And so this is so important. In Acts, we even see he tells them over and over again, this is is how you live. It's by the Spirit. And and so that kind of leads me to my next point. We've simply forgotten that the Holy Spirit is essential to living the Christian life. Been book after book written by this. Francis Chan has a good book about it, that Jesus continued book. Uh, There's so many good books about the Holy Spirit. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is one of the most misunderstood concepts. Um, Let's not say concept. He's a misunderstood person, right, in the Bible. It's, it's, so, it's so divisive in churches today. You've got some churches that that's all they talk about and some churches who deny it even exists. Uh, one of uh, one of the books that Jim Cimbala wrote, I love the title of this, uh, and it's I think it's his book, Fresh, pa- Fresh Wind, Fresh Power. It's about the Holy Spirit. He, it, one of the chapters of his books is of cemeteries and insane asylums. And that was how he talked about the Holy Spirit. It's either a cemetery in a church or an insane asylum. And he's like, neither one is right, guys. Come on, let, let's kind of, let's learn how to actually live by the Holy Spirit. And, and so... typically the two extremes are this. You either focus on the spirit apart from the word and you do all sorts of stuff that's not even in the Bible or on the other extreme, you focus on the word apart from the spirit. 
And the problem is we can't really understand the Word without the Spirit. We need both. They both are essential, the Word and the Spirit. Um, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, uh, again, in this book, I, I read this. He said, once as Paul taught on the Christian life to a, gr- a group of new disciples at Ephesus, he mentioned the importance of the Holy Spirit. They immediately interrupted him. Wait, who? We, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And I feel like that's like uh, indicative of so many in the church today. Uh, Many Christians might still be in the same place, functionally speaking. Though they have heard of the Holy Spirit in a doctrinal sense, they have no real interaction with or dependence upon Him. Functionally, they live in ways unaware that there is a living, moving Holy Spirit. These Christians have all but excised the Holy Spirit from the Trinity. Instead, they believe, functionally speaking, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. But the Spirit and the Word work inseparably. One without the other leads to a dysfunctional Christianity. And so I, I, today, I'm just telling you, this is how Jesus prepared his disciples. It's how he's preparing us. In Acts chapter 1, um, this is what he told them. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 4. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water. But in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching so they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white men, two white robed men suddenly stood among them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. And so this is after, of course, after the resurrection, after he'd appeared to them on the Sea of Galilee. We talked about this last week, and Peter was restored. They're back in Jerusalem. This is the the final instruction to the disciples. It's the final instruction. And and what does he say? You're going to wait here, and then you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then, only then, is when you're going to be my witnesses. It's going to start right here in Jerusalem where we're at. You're going to move uh, uh, north and, and around the, you know, and all around the sur- surrounding area there to the Judean uh, wilderness and, and beyond. All right, the, that's where you're going next, to Judea, to Judea uh, the kind of where the tribes of Israel had settled. Then you're moving into Samaria, which is kind of a little farther north. And then you're not going to stop there. You're going to keep going to the ends of the earth. That's the, that's the instruction that he's given him. And, the, and the, this is the moment that everything changes for the disciples. The traditional location for this is that Jesus is on top of the Mount of Olives. There are several places on top of the Mount of Olives and towers to commemorate it. There was a church built in the 300s called the Church of uh, Paternoster, uh, which means our father in Latin. And that, that, that's the uh, it's a church that's still built there today. It's been destroyed and rebuilt several times. But all throughout the church, they have the Lord's Prayer in all the different languages of, of the world. It's also called Eliona. And it's right there on the top of the Mount of Olives. And that's where people believe that Jesus ascended back into heaven. 
And what the, the scripture says here is this is why it's important. One, it's signal. When Jesus ascended, it showed that this was the end of his earthly ministry and the start of the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling inside of us. It meant that he was going to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place for us, it means he's going to come back and receive us unto himself so that where he is, we might also be, right? And then it set the pattern for his return because it said, just as you saw him go, he's going to return. So when Jesus comes back, where is he coming back and, and, and setting his feet? Prophecy tells us it's on the Mount of Olives. Every eye is going to see it. I mean, this is, this is so incredible to think about. Acts chapter 2, uh, we see... Um, uh, we see kind of what happens. And um, it says on the day of Pentecost, the believers, they were meeting together in one place. And, you know, all of a sudden this, this incredible, this spirit, this sound from heaven, like the roar of a mighty windstorm, it filled the house where they were sitting. Flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit had gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. They were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the, by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. In other words, these are not religious people. These are people from the backwoods. These are, these, are the, these, are, these are the rednecks, and they're the ones right doing this. It doesn't make sense. And yet we hear them speaking in our own languages. So we, we see the Holy Spirit descend on. The first thing he does, it gives them a supernatural ability that they did not have before. The ability to communicate in the languages of the people from all over the world that were there gathering here at Pentecost. And so just incredible. This, this is what started the movement that turned the world upside down. We know what happens next. Peter stands up and preaches. Uh, this is what's really interesting. We don't really know where he preached preach the message where 3,000 people um, got saved. Uh, there, you can read it in, you know, in Acts chapter 2. Um, but tradition kind of teaches us where he taught that was the southern steps. The same steps I showed in that video. Uh, the steps that would lead up to the temple, they, they were big enough to hold 3,000 people. And not only that... Uh, because uh, you were, they were steps leading up to the temple, there were all these little uh, ceremonial bathing places. They call, they're called them mikvahs in, in Israel. And these were where people would ceremonially, ceremonially get clean before they entered the temple. So that whole step area, and you can see them all around, it's surrounded by these mikvahs that could be used for baptisms. So when you read that 3,000 people got saved, this is a place where 3,000 people could stand. This is a place where 3,000 people could be baptized. And the steps are still there today. It's pretty incredible, guys, just thinking about that. All right? And so it, this, the Spirit moved. 3,000 people received Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's later in Acts chapter 2, they baptized them there. The gift that they had been waiting for finally arrived. And then what happens? Then the church begins to grow. It began, that's what the whole book of Acts is, how the Holy Spirit is working. It's called, and I know some translations call it the Acts of the Apostles. I would say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? I mean, that's who's really doing the work in the book of Acts. Let's, let's, not, let's not elevate ourselves above the Spirit here. 
and by the power of the Spirit that said the Lord added daily to their number who were being saved, right? I mean, this is uh, the next two years, uh, followers of Jesus filled Jerusalem. Within 20 years, Scripture records Christians spreading the good news around the entire Roman Empire, raising up an entire new generation of disciples. By the time we get to AD 49, Paul, uh, during his second missionary journey, it says this in, in Acts 17, verse 6. It said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They've, they've shown up and they're, they're, they didn't want them there because they're like, everywhere they go, they turn the world upside down. They are making a difference wherever they go. By the time, right, uh, you, you see that this time they had spread. They're going everywhere. This is, it's an incredible impact. Throughout the book of Acts alone, the Holy Spirit is referenced more than 50 times. We see him leading and prompting the disciples. We see him kind of opening doors and closing doors. We, we see him guiding them, empowering them, and, and enabling them to do miracles and speak the truth. And the same Peter that denied Christ is now boldly preaching a message. In fact, right, uh, you, you see, they, they just spread out to the ends of the known world. Um, I read this, and it was so good. It said, the first church was not primarily a study group, a self-discovery seminar, or a building program. It was a mighty movement of the Spirit that propelled Jesus' followers into the whole world, preaching the gospel. Acts is the story of the disciples following that Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, trying to keep up, but feeling like a kite in a hurricane. You want to know, that's such a good analogy of what it's like living life with the Spirit of God. It's like flying a kite in a hurricane. We're, that, we're the kite. We're getting pushed around and blown everywhere, and we're just like, hold on. Jesus is at work. I, I felt like that so many times in my life. And so we have the Holy Spirit as our helper, as our advocate, as our best friend. When we open the Bible, we are reading his word, but the Spirit is at work helping us understand it and apply that word. And so it helps us discover our calling. It helps us do what we cannot do on our own. It helps us proclaim the good news, the gospel message that Jesus saves. It helps us go out into our communities and, and serve. It helps us reach people who are hurting. And we do it all, right? We prove to the world that we are disciples by our love, by, by, by our, 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 just our love for what we are doing and our love for who Jesus is and what he has done. And so that brings me to my, my last video this morning. So why does the church exist? Um, that's a, a question I think we all need to, to wrestle with. Um, this I'm standing right here on the Mount of Olives, very significant place in the life of Jesus. It's where he taught his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's um, uh, when he was entering into Jerusalem that final week, he stopped at the top of Mount Olives, not far from where I am now, and, and looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept. Because he looked at the city and he realized how much they needed God. And then we know the story. He entered right where where we are now, going into Jerusalem, the Palm Sunday, the people chanting, chanting Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Um, this is where Jesus um, ascended into heaven, and this is where he's coming back again. And so when we think about that, um, why do we exist as a church? Why do we do, uh, why, do, why do we evangelize? Why do we tell others about Jesus? It's because we know uh, that he has given us a promise that 
He's going to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place, he will come back and receive us unto himself so that we may be where he is. And I, I and for me, that's what gives me um, so much motivation to know uh, that one day we will be with him for all of eternity. Um, behind me, you'll see the, the Temple Mount. Um, the city of David is over to uh, be your left. Um, and you see where um, Solomon's Temple once stood. This is a very special place. And uh, I just want to challenge you a little bit. Uh, do you have an urgency to tell others about Jesus? Do you have an urgency uh, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Guys, this is why we do a series like this. It's to bring us to the point to realize God is not done with us and we are not here just together and, and sing worship and, and have a good motivational lesson each week. We're here to live a spirit-empowered life telling others about Jesus. I could think of no better way this morning than to end with a, a time of communion. And that, that brings me to my last point, the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of the life and love of Jesus and an encouragement to an, a spirit-empowered life. In Luke 22, we have a little bit of background to the Lord's Supper, and we're kind of backing up a little bit here in the story, but it says the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. And he said, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him at the house he enters. Say to the owner, if the, te the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He'll take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. And they went off to the city, found everything just as he had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. And when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, get this, I've been eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I think we have a lot of people in the church world today who are busy doing good work but are burned out. Who are weary, who are longing for joy. They, they, they desperately need to understand the importance of the Holy Spirit to understand his presence and his power. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Jesus has prepared us to do. We're remembering what Jesus has done and we're looking forward to his return. For all who believe, we have the same Holy Spirit inside of us that the disciples had. Do you really believe that the Spirit inside you is better than the Jesus beside you? That's my question today. We've done this whole series not just to teach you facts, but to teach you how to walk with Jesus. So my question to you is, do you really know Jesus? Is he the Lord of your life? It's not enough to be a good person. It's not enough to just go to church. It's not enough to, to know facts about Jesus. You can tell me all about Jesus, but do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you surrendered your life and is he the Lord of your life? In Romans it says, all of us have sinned and, and, and fall short of God's glory. Right? It, I mean, it sets the stage. It says, every single one of us, none of us are good enough. But it says, the wages of sin is death. However, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love towards us. And while we were yet, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And then it goes on in Romans 10. So if you declare, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have all these passages throughout scripture. Ephesians 2, 8, I shared last week, for we're saved by grace through faith. It's not by works. It's not by what we've done or earned or accomplished. We're saved by the free gift of God. And so when we acknowledge our need for God, when we surrender, when we make him the Lord of life, your life is forever changed. And guess what? You are empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray right now. If you don't know Jesus, this is your opportunity to to forever change your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Man, it's, it's so hard to believe how much you loved us and what you did and what you accomplished. You're now in in heaven, but we have within us the Holy Spirit empowering us. I know there's no humanly way possible. There's no human explanation for even why I can stand up here and preach apart and aside from the Holy Spirit. That's that's it. And all of us can share the same thing. It's, it's, It's by the grace of God that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place. So that we might be saved, we might be reconciled to you, and so that we might receive this Holy Spirit. So my prayer is that for anyone listening online, for anyone here today, if you don't really know Jesus, today would be the day that you make sure. That you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart, God, that you you raised Jesus from the dead, and that we put our faith and our trust in Jesus to save us. So while every head is bowed, every eye closed, if you don't know Jesus, would you, and you want to make him the Lord of your life. Now, the prayer is not magical. It's just, a, it's, it's just the confession that you make of, a, of a, a change that's taken place in your heart. Would you just pray with me right now and just say, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he loved me so much that he went to the cross on my behalf that he lived that perfect life and he became the sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That he did what I could not do. And and, and through his his resurrection, he conquered death, just guaranteeing us an eternal life with you forever. So Lord, I acknowledge my sinfulness. I acknowledge my need for you. and, And I just pray, Lord, that I I just confess that I believe, I trust. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want the Holy Spirit to empower me, to guide me. I know I can't do life on my own. I'm I'm tired of trying to do things my way. So I'm going to trust you. Lord, save me, change me, and transform me to be more like Jesus. While every head is bowed, I'm just going to ask you if there's anybody here that prayed that prayer today. Would you just, nobody's looking around, just lift up your hand and say, Mike, I, I, want, I want you to pray for me. I want you to know I, I'm, I'm tired, of, <laughs> tired of not knowing. I, I want to make sure. Anybody here? And online, there's a place you can let us know as well. We've seen people saved through our messages online. Amen. Amen. God still saves people today. We're so thankful for that. Heavenly Father, I pray for anybody here, for anybody online that, that, has made that confession that you would give them the assurance to know that they are saved 
Because the devil's going to attack. The devil's going to come after him. The devil's going to be right there to make us doubt our salvation. But you have secured us. You, you have us in your hand and the devil can't snatch us away. Praise God. Lord, we just thank you this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.